think early in, early in the shutdown last year, you, you just sang a couple hymns and put them on Facebook, didn't you? And they were a great encouragement to all of us. And um, thank you. I know, I know your heart is to sing the Lord's word to us and encourage us. And thank you for that. And um, very, very much. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll begin in verse 12 today. And make it through, Lord willing, verse 15. Congratulate Pastor Steve and Sharla with number four on the way. I don't know, is it four and five or just four? Just four, okay. Three princesses, maybe four princesses, maybe three princesses and a prince, who knows? We're all waiting for that reveal party to happen. But pray for Sharla. And um, so glad they're able to be here today. Where's Tyler? Where's Big T? How many days? 20 days till the big wedding. So, Tyler's been up to speed on that for quite a while. We're excited for for that day, uh, to be sure. Uh, I'll just uh, share something with you real quickly. I think think we're all living in a culture uh, of performance. Everywhere you look, there's performance evaluations at work. There's performance on stage at concerts. There's performance on sports stage. We're in the early days of the Olympics, right? And everyone's getting evaluated based on their performance. Um, All of our lives include some kind of performance analysis. And I suppose that's just part of God's created order. When we come to church, though, there is no performance. I think performance has crept into the church for a few decades now to the point where we have worship leaders and and people on stage that lead the flock in worship And oftentimes churches are evaluated based on how good those worship leaders are. That's just not in the Bible at all. I will tell you that was an Old Testament potential reality. The Levites would lead in worship, the chorus masters, the choirs, but these were paid people. You have to understand that. Any choir members joining in September that would like a check? Yeah, just they're holding their hands down. There were no choirs in the New Testament, folks. They're not spoken of one time from the book of Acts chapter 2 forward. doesn't mean that it's wrong to have one, obviously. We certainly enjoy ours, don't we? We certainly enjoy special music, as we've called it for a long time. But neither the choir nor anyone that participates in special music would call themselves worship leaders. Do you know who the leader of worship is in the New Testament church context? I believe it's the Spirit of God. We know in that celestial time to come that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to write a new score 
with a new text to put to that score that all the saints surrounding the throne are going to sing, and he's going to lead that choir as the divine worship leader. But do you know who leads in worship in the New Testament local church? Bob Susick. Donna Grenier. Chuck Laughlin. Ron Hart. You do. Under the direction of the Holy Spirit that's the conductor, as he ministers in your heart, the word of God. You lead under his, fo- his leadership. You follow under his leadership, presenting your heart to the Lord. And in the meantime, doing what? And I'm growing in this. I'm 53. Hopefully I got a long way to go. I'm a lot to learn. But I'm just sitting here, standing here singing this morning. I don't know if I want to sing up front anymore. I don't want to go to the back. I just want to be among, right? I, my, my, I look at the text that's on the screen and that you're reading from your hymn books, and, and Colossians 3 calls me to be a teacher of that text to people around me, which means that he's called you to do the same thing. Right. I think we, we, we fail to sing at our best because we don't feel we can perform as well as somebody else. And I think that's just more of the cultural influence that we talked about at first. I really want you to think about this, these, these things. And, and, and each time you prepare your heart to come and worship, the Lord, many together as one, be a voice of teaching God's word to one another. Amen. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And because I need that instruction from you. And you taught me well this morning. So thank you. And uh, I'm sure if I'm off base on any of these things, we have some wonderful faithful elders that will let me know. You're welcome to let me know uh, for sure. But it was just on my heart today. Um, in a culture that's increasingly becoming so performance-based, right? Kids want to be influencers on Instagram, right? They want to, they and then their Instagrams are evaluated. Everyone's Twitter's evaluated. Everyone's life's evaluated. Why? Because they put themselves out there to be evaluated. And everyone's okay with that. This is my story, right? This is my truth. This is who I am. And everyone evaluates them. And then you look at the comments and you can get everyone's evaluation. In a culture that's just incredibly performance driven, it's almost like that's become an identity crisis in our culture, even among Christians so performance driven some people come to church and they don't feel like they can worship because i can't worship like they can i could never sing like they can that are on stage so i i don't really have much to offer you don't have performance to offer you have the word of god to offer through your voice to one another and it happens to have a tune put with it so continue to encourage each other that way and um we can have a conversation about it for sure so in corinthians 12 8, verses 12 to 15, let's read. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to the person, according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. We kind of left off there last week. We'll begin where we left off last week. Verse 13, for this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. You're going to see 
the word equality twice. And we're going to unpack the meaning of that word within the context here. Because really we're preaching this morning about fairness and sharing under gospel progress. If you just really want a proposition for this morning, it's fairness. What is fairness and sharing and giving unto the progress of the gospel? Verse 14, at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their needs so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much and he who gathered little had no lack. It's an Old Testament text from the book of Exodus that we'll look at as we conclude this morning. Do you remember trying on your dad's shoes when you were little? I did all the time. When I was little, my dad's shoes were just, to me, were mammoth. Now, as a full-grown adult, I try to put my shoes into one of my kid's shoes, and his shoes still seem mammoth to me. It didn't seem when I was a little kid that I would ever grow that big or my foot would ever get that long to, to fill that shoe. And quite frankly, that's how I feel spiritually when I consider the example of the Macedonian churches and how they shared their resources for the progress of the gospel. I don't, I don't know that I'll ever, I hope to understand someday the Macedonian heart where I could come to the point where I could fill their shoes, so to speak, for the cause of the gospel in this way. That may have been what the faithful folks in Corinth were thinking as they rekindled their desire to once again share in the caring of the saints for the progress of the gospel. They may have thought, I just can't wrap my head or heart around the Macedonian example. Like, how do you even do that? And that's why they needed Paul's admonition again to pick up where they left off a year previously. Of course, Paul's answer was to revisit verse 9, as you can. Verse 9, for me, as we've already studied, the example for Christ is the summit of the portion, of this portion of the Bible. It's the beautiful peak of serving and sharing. Jesus is the model of sacrificial, joyful mission. And what we feel we just can't ever match up or grow up in our hearts to how love would share and give, then, of course, we go to the example of Christ to consider. And in him, we can. According to Peter in 2 Peter 3.18, we certainly can as we grow in grace. As we grow in what? Grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we grow, we learn of him. Therefore, learning, verse 9, he who was rich became poor in order that we might become rich. And we know that's not a mount but it's just an analogy. It's a spiritual analogy. Blended in with the virtues of verse 7 is the grace of sharing to help the saints so the gospel can be spread and all are developed over time with divine help from heaven. So the shoes can be filled. God's grace grows us so those shoes can be filled. I want to pause here just for a moment and um, make an observation. As I was preparing this week, uh, this was one of those uh, thoughts that kept coming into my mind that kept distracting me away from 
reading and studying my books and it kept coming so often that I just felt okay I'll stop and I'll just kind of meditate on it and mull over it I'm all over what I'm going to say here in the next five or six minutes uh, a lot and a lot and a lot uh, so much so I even asked two men in our church over 60 um, about what I was thinking and about what I'm going to share with you here just to make sure that I um, was not incorrect in saying what I'm going to say in relationship to this context um, and both of them said you know pastor I I really, I really can't say that, that you're wrong there. And I'm not looking to be proved right. I'm just going to make an observation. Make an observation. Because this is an observation that I, I'm cautious making because I, don't, I haven't seen, and you, you may have a library full of people that have made this observation before, but of the resources that I have, I've not seen anyone else make this observation about sharing in the New Testament. Um, so I say all those qualifiers, not to apologize for what I'm going to say, I'm just going to say it, um, and you can share with me later your thoughts on it. After the book of Acts, there's really not much of the New Testament given to the topic of caring for the saints. It's there, we're going to highlight each one, but this is the most pregnant text, if you will, on sharing these two chapters. But there is much written about spreading the gospel. Why not talk much about sharing and caring for the needs of the flock and the local body and other local bodies? I want to look at a few passages of the small portion of the New Testament that do discuss sharing and caring for the flock after the book of Acts. Galatians 6.10 is certainly one of those, right? Do good unto all men, especially the household of faith. Many of you know that text. We certainly want to help those in need in our community unto the cause of Christ, but we can't do that at the expense of caring for each other right here. And, and you folks care for each other really, really well. I think of Philippians chapter 4 that we've already read through twice since we began chapter 8. Philippians, we know, is, uh, Philippi is a Macedonian church. They're part of the example, the trend setting, if you will, the modeling of what generous, sacrificial, joyful sharing really is. Paul says there in Philippians chapter 4 that they shared well in caring for his need. So that was not only their heart set to help the Jerusalem church, but they were also helping Paul's missions emphasis and church planting ministry. Some might suggest that 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is a passage to consider. One could assume that the discussion of a work ethic there is done because there was a small portion of church members that were so excited about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ that they kind of quit their jobs and they became lazy. And Paul says there, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't what? He shouldn't eat. Encouraging those once very missions-minded Thessalonians, those Macedonians, to, to get back on track themselves in that second letter. So I suppose that could be an admonition about sharing or, or giving. Um, in other words, 
don't really need to take care of the need of the person who's not working. The man should work so that he can eat. If someone's lazy and habitually so, the context is there, don't even fellowship with that person. That person needs to get a job. And if that person requires a $70,000 a year salary, but there's none of those available out there, that he's going to go get two jobs at 35 to reach his goal. He's just going to work because the command is to work. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. If a man's not working, listen, Thessalonian believers, separate from him. Have no part with him. Don't treat him as an enemy, but warn him and exhort him to go get a job. That's that context. So I, that's really passively involved with, with sharing and so forth. Go with me to 1 John 3. Here's one that's uh, certainly clear that, that many of you are familiar with. 1 John chapter 3, and let's begin reading in verse 17. First John 3, 17, But whoever has this world's goods... And sees his brother, so we're definitely having a local church being taught here. And the brother here would be synonymous with those who know Christ. And sees a brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. So the Apostle John says that this is a matter of the assurance of our faith. The assurance of our faith is different than eternal security. Eternal security, God took care of that. That's a done deal when you trusted Christ. The assurance part is really on us. When you're obeying the Lord, you feel confident that you're born again. And when you're not obeying the Lord, you struggle with assurance, right? Assurance is a feeling, it's not a reality. That feeling becomes our reality connected to eternal security when we're obeying. And John's saying here, if you know of another saint in the church that has a need, and you have it within your ability to care for that need, and you don't, then you probably are struggling in your assurance. This is one of the, the litmus tests of whether you're born again or not in, in 1 John, and many of you know that that's one of the main reasons why this book was inspired and preserved. So, so there's that. John's heart is coupled with James' heart in James chapter 2. Can you jump over there with me uh, back a few pages? Okay. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. And I'm telling you folks, I'm diving into this text for this week. I keep, I keep you know, trying like a jackhammer go deeper and deeper and deeper and the jackhammer just keeps pound, popping back at me. You stop and just kind of go here and I, I trust it. I trust my conclusion of all this is of the Lord in relationship to him. And I really think if the conclusion's biblical and it's correct, that everyone's heart here is going to be incredibly relieved. Unburdened uh, for so many reasons. Verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, 
can that faith save him? If a brother or sister, then he's going to kind of give an example of faith and good works. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. So that's about sharing, isn't it? It's about sharing. And it's tied to, as 1 John was, our faith and our good works that come from our faith and the assurance that's connected with that as well. I think of um, the story of Philemon and Onesimus. For those of you who are newer Christians, that's the shortest book of the New Testament. And it's a story about how there was uh, Philemon had someone working for him named Onesimus. So Onesimus robbed him blind and ran away. Paul ran into Onesimus later, I believe it was in Rome, won him to Christ and was sending him back to Philemon to be accepted by the house church that was meeting in Philemon's home. And you read that short letter, and it's very, very clear. Paul is telling Philemon and that church, receive Onesimus that formerly robbed you blind, who's now in Christ, back and share all things with him as you would share them with me because he's in Christ your love your affection your resources your care he's actually asking Philemon to take him back in his employ I believe give him his job back share with him because now he's a child of God and, and I, so I think Philemon that particular uh, aspect of Philemon is about sharing and about giving. Paul teaches Timothy how to develop contentment and to handle the, those who are wealthy in the church. Uh, go over to 1 Timothy chapter 6 with me, if you will, back a few more pages to the left. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, again, a familiar passage for, for a number of us. But I'm going through this a little bit more carefully because I want all of us to, to rejoice in the fact that regularly at Grace Church, God gives us new little ones in Christ and adolescents in Christ and young men in Christ and men and women of Christ and there's different maturity levels here all the time. Um, so I'm going to go through some things that many of you are just, for, it's just common sense to you, but I think there's learning for all of us to be had here, uh, especially the younger ones uh, in the Lord. First uh, chapter 6, let's look at verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, for we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I'll go down to verse 17. Paul's telling Timothy here, as a younger pastor at Ephesus, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. 
And then he says what? Instruct them to do good. With anything that God's benefited with you, you're to do something with it. To the flock, right? Do good unto all men, especially of the household of faith. To be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, familiar words to us in 2 Corinthians 8, right? Storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future. Look where we're going to go here. He's not talking about the solid foundation of, the, of a healthy 401k. Sharing and giving in the New Testament among one another and among churches is all for what? Gospel progress. It's for divine purpose. So that they might take hold of that which is life indeed. Jesus Christ said, I came to give you life and to give you life more abundantly. God sent his only love and uh, his only unique son into the world to demonstrate his love to the world that they might not perish but have eternal life. So the wealthy here are instructed to be generous, to demonstrate that generosity and a creative um, construct of good deeds to those who are in need for, again, uh, spiritual purposes. James chapter 2, you don't need to go there. I'll just kind of explain it. It's very, very clear in the scriptures that God is no respecter of persons. And in the church in which James writes to, they have a problem with um, identity crises, if you will. There's the poor and there's, and there's the rich. They forgot that God's no respecter of persons and, and they got away from that. And so the rich are being treated a lot better than the poor in the church. God actually calls that evil. Especially when we understand our true identities exclusively in Jesus Christ. That's who we exclusively identify with. And so, in James chapter 2, in that context, there was, uh, there was some favoritism going on to the more wealthy in the church. And that was affecting the care for the poor. So I suppose that text is about giving and sharing. 1 Corinthians 11, we won't go there. You can write that down, study it on your own time. This is a context of the Corinthian church when they're actually being addressed with a, with a harsh letter. There's some darker things going on in the church at that point. And I really think that there were some wealthy people there that maybe didn't have to work as many hours as the working class did that were showing up for worship a little early and they were eating the bread that was designed to be shared at the Lord's Supper. And they were, um, they were not um, certainly right in their hearts and their heart's priority to worship the Lord with integrity around the table of the Lord. And, and there were times, as I understand that, history of that text, the working class would come to worship and enjoy the Lord's Supper together, and there was no bread left for them to do so. So I suppose that might be somewhat about giving and sharing and so forth, but again, it's not 
directly addressing it like some of these texts do. So this is what I want to say. Most of these texts surround the topic of sharing and giving for the flock in certain ways, but none really demand that giving begin or resume in these churches. That's kind of like rung number one on the ladder. There's no New Testament passage that I know of where the people of God are told to begin giving. Let alone pick it up again. The only one where they're told to pick it up again is in the text that we're studying. And remember, that wasn't giving to the church of Corinth. That was giving to another church. Are you with me? This whole two chapters is about a group of churches gathering a collection for a very impoverished church in Jerusalem. It has nothing to do directly with how they're giving within the context of Corinth. Paul, Peter, James, Jude, John, all the writers of Scripture, none of them demand or even come close to even, no one coerces any church or any people group to start giving for the care of their own flock so their own flock can have gospel progress. As a matter of fact, demanding giving and sharing isn't even really part of the context of Galatians 6 that we already said is good for us to do good unto all men, especially the household of faith. It's not even in 1 Timothy 5.17, and you can write that down, 1 Timothy 5.17, 1 Corinthians 9, and Galatians 6, 6 to 10, all include instructions of how to share and give with those who teach you in the word, those who shepherd you in the word, right? Uh, how, do you, how do you make sure that your pastor teachers are cared for? Because in the Old Testament context, the, the religious leaders, if you will, were who? The Levites. And were they paid or not paid? They were paid. And we went through that several weeks ago, right? There's the Old Testament tax, which was the tithe. We won't go through that again. So those who are pastor teachers, certainly in the first century, I would say probably most of them were bivocational. I've been bivocational most of my pastoral ministry. Certainly there's qualifications and directives given. Acts chapter 6, you know, practically for the help of pastor teachers, right? Choose you out among yourselves men full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. Those were the choosing of the first deacons in Jerusalem. Why? Because there was a discrepancy in how Greek widows were being cared for and how Jewish widows were being cared for. And there was a little divide in the early church. And those who were not Jewish felt like their widows weren't being cared for as well as the Jewish widows were because Old Testament Mosaic Law really demanded and had a very clear-cut construct on how widows indeed should be cared for. So they had been doing that for centuries. Well, my point was, even in Acts chapter 6, there was no demand to give 
there was clarification and qualification and direction given on who and how to give what had been given to. You read Acts 3, 4, 5, and all the different examples there of people buying, right? Or people selling and bringing to so that those who were impoverished would have their needs met, right? As a matter of fact, you know the, the, the tough story to swallow of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, right? They weren't even told to give. They just came and gave, but they did so a little dishonestly. It had a tough consequence. But they were still coming. People were lining up to give. They were like the Macedonians. What were they doing? They were begging for opportunities to share. And this was a common grace response in every New Testament church. That's just how grace operates. Sharing and giving is just one of those many virtues grace compels growth in believers just to do. This is grace at work. There's no need for an admonition to share and to give. That's why Paul again says, I make a suggestion here and I give no command about your giving. He's not having to tell them, look, you, you got people in church in Corinth that are in great need and you guys are struggling so much, you can't even be a gospel testimony in Corinth. He never says that. He never tells Corinth even to start giving among themselves. His only admonition, as we saw, the only imperative in two chapters is in verse 11, start picking up where you left off and you're gathering of the gift for who? For Jerusalem. He never has to tell them to take care of themselves. No gospel, no author of scripture does that. Post-Acts. Certainly, I don't see it in the book of Acts. It's just supernaturally natural. Sharing with their own church was never in question. But that which they had begun first a year ago in collecting for the poor in the church in Jerusalem had stopped. We just explained why it probably had stopped. And Paul's just admonishing, pick it up again. He's saying, hey, the Macedonians are coming to Corinth shortly. Let's make sure that they're not outpacing you in helping those who first brought the gospel to all of us. And that was Jerusalem. These scriptural observations are profound to me. I, I don't know there is ever a cajoling or even uh, of a believer uh, or not even close to a coercion of a believer in the whole New Testament on sharing and giving. I think most of us would say, oh, wow, maybe I'm saying, oh, wow, to that biblical reality because a lot of our pasts have been filled with coercion, manipulation, and conjoling to give. Like our ecclesiastical experience, not all of us, but a healthy number of us, has been about really giving. That's what we said last week. A lot of people 
just don't give because they're tired of being told to give. The New Testament never tells people to give in their own context. Because it's just as natural for them to give as it is for them to breathe. That's liberating for me. Some people, really good people, have said, Pastor, you should preach more on giving. We haven't heard you preach a message on sharing and giving in all these years. I was like, well, I appreciate that. Well, our church really needs it right now. We're in a building program. And this says, like, eh, I appreciate that. But I explained my expository philosophy last week. You know, if it, if it comes up within a context, we'll share about it. But folks, it just really doesn't come up in any context. <laughs> it just doesn't. Because it's the assumption from Seth Hobie all the way back to Al Smetana, all the way up here to Bob Gray, and all the way back there to Bob Pavis and everyone in between them, that everyone's just doing this. So it doesn't have to be addressed, let alone coerced or manipulated, or even a funny joke told to till up the soil of your hard hearts to get you to write a bigger check. Right? Always part of Bible conferences in my past where people come from all over the country and there's a big Bible conference offering. I suppose there's nothing wrong with that. But boy, the person coming up to take the offering always had the brightest wit and sense of humor in the whole building. And that was on purpose, right? If you couldn't tell a good joke, you weren't going to be coming up to take the offer. If you couldn't get people to smile or laugh, right, and make it easier for them to get out their checkbooks and chuckle while they're writing a big number then you just weren't going to take the offering. Like, my college would never ask me to come up and take an offering because I can't tell a good joke. <laughs> Every one of you know it. <laughs> There's just nothing of that in the New Testament because it doesn't have to be. How liberating is that? How joyful is that? Well, do I give? Do I don't give? How much do I give? It's never about amounts in the New Testament. We discussed that last week. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? No, you just do. Amen. It works out. And you beg to do. It's going to be okay. God's got this. God gave you all this you got anyway. Amen. Like Timothy said, you brought nothing into this world. You're going to take nothing out. It's all God's anyway. You just do. The command here is for them to start giving to another church, not their own. This is above and beyond because their own was just a matter, it was perfunctory. So, the conclusion by way of introduction <laughs> is simply this. God's grace allows each of us to fill some spiritual big shoes that we thought we'd never grow into comfortably when we come to trying to, to, to follow the model of the Macedonian heart set, mindset here when it comes to sharing for our flocks. So sharing can be done with other like-minded flocks so together the gospel could be advanced. In other words, 
We should be healthy enough here spiritually, practically, financially, so that we can always be able to help somebody else. So that we can always be ready to send a group to Wisconsin to help a church rebuild their lobby. So we can always have a group to go to a pastor in New York City whose wife doesn't have a kitchen to cook dinner for all their guests, and so we're going to rebuild her kitchen. To always send a construction group out to Utah. We've gone all over the place. We plan on going more. But you know how many churches send those teams out just because that's the team and that's what they do, and they're never even making budget in their own church? And they've got people in their own church that are genuinely impoverished? that wonder where their next meal's coming from? But my goodness, we've got that men's construction team, doggone it, they're going to go, because that's what we do. I'm telling you, there was no New Testament church that I know of that would ever send a construction team out when they knew they had someone in need inside. And if they did, James addressed it, John addressed it, but it was just very brief. So it wasn't a pervasive problem. Our hearts following the example of Christ and the Macedonians and the Tituses of the world and the people in our midst, we just naturally beg to the seat to give. God, where can I? Right here. Do good unto all men, especially our household of faith, so that we can be cared for, so that we can give to other churches, so we all can be strengthened to do what together? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples. That's why you're here anyway. The greatest giver of all mankind, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, came and gave all for that reason. It's just, just a burden on my heart this week. And that's why this context to me, if you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 as we wrap up this morning, that's why this context to me is so powerful as we gave our proposition early in the morning. This is about fairness in giving. You know, when you have a ton of people, not a ton, when you have a handful of people, smaller churches in the first century church, right? No one really knows how big the church of Corinth was. They, they say that the church of Ephesus was probably the largest church of Bible churches in the New Testament. But even then, they're, they're guessed at its size. Right? So we know Corinth was probably under 250, under 300, 250, 300 people. Because Ephesus at its max, people, historians say, well, that was about the biggest church. I think Colossians, the Colossae church was one of the smallest at 25 people. So when these people all come together and they give and they're begging to give, you know, and there's resources that are abounding to care for the needs of the flock so the gospel can go forward and there's enough left over where they can actually help other churches and then network with them for the cause of the gospel. Sometimes when you've got this pot overflowing, sometimes some unreasonable and Unethical and some human things can happen if there's not instruction given to how to handle the surplus. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think we see that all the time in evangelical ministries, whether it be a TV evangelists or, or whatever, right? Where there's this big pot and there's no accountability and there's no gospel structure to it, it could be a problem. 
So Paul says here, let's talk about fairness. Let's talk about the ethic of how this is going to work to the saint in, 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 in Corinth. And then for our learning here, uh, that's what the Bible's for, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. So he's, what does he say here? For if the readiness is present, it's acceptable according to what a person has and not according to what he doesn't have. The statement by Paul is actually quite easily understood. It ties into what we discussed last week. We should share out of our resources, not out of our resources, but according to our resources. Let me share what this does not mean. It does not mean that if we have less resources than others, that we should share until we go into debt. It does not mean that if we have more resources than others, that we only share in view of our investment portfolio. Of course, they didn't have these back then. So the point in sharing was done by the wealth with equal joy and sacrifice is the not so wealthy. And remember, grace touches every believer's heart to naturally give. It does not mean thirdly that those who have more resources share until they have poverty. And it does not mean that those who have less give so they can become rich. Unlike the, unlike the gospel prosperity preached by many on television and in our culture today, and I would say even non-television preachers. It does not mean that. Now remember, the Corinthians are already sharing well among their flock under the advancements of the gospel now that they're back in fellowship with the Lord. This is regarding a gift for another church. So they may be thinking as they're again uh, strengthened in their walk with God, how can we even afford a free will gift beyond what we're already sharing among our own flock for gospel progress? This text has been taught so long as applicable to local church giving only, we've lost the meaning of the text. They're giving already. When Paul says here, pick it up again, and they're demanded to do so, they're, they're thinking about, oh, wow, I'm already writing my check to Corinth to care for people and to, for the cause of the gospel. How in the world am I going to start taking care of another church? Wow, that's a big responsibility. And it would be if you were the only one doing it. But the understanding of the text is everyone's participating in local church sharing. So there should be an abundance to gather for another church and their help so that we can work together for gospel progress. So don't worry about being pressured to the individual or even pressured collectively as a church. It's okay. God's grace can do this too. And by the way, this is not a sermon on a command for you to give so much so we can help other churches. I don't even have to give that command here, and I never would. The Bible doesn't. It's just naturally happening because more and more of you are sharing in the needs of the local church, so it's going to happen. It's, it's pretty simple, actually. Quite liberating, quite frankly. Now, the church of Corinth was much more lavished with goods than the Macedonian church. 
But there can be times when those churches, which even have more per capita income, so to speak, struggle with generously giving. I, I think you know, that can happen at Christmas time with our little kids when they're little, right? They might be lavished, each of them, with a number of gifts. And it is amazing to me, I was probably once that way too, if my parents were alive, they could probably attest to that fact, that you can open up five gifts, play with all five in 10 minutes, and be bored with them already and want to play with your brother's gift. <laughs> right? It's amazing how that happens. And then you get an argument over your brother who doesn't want to share his gift because his 10 minutes of playing with his five aren't over yet. And you find people struggling when they've been lavished with. I don't think that was Corinth. I think they, they really had given all they thought they could. How in the world can we give extra outside of taking care of our own flock? And so Paul says, yeah, the Macedonians did, and they were a little pop, more poor than you but God managed them to take care of themselves and even give to Jerusalem out of their poverty too. That's all he's saying. You'll be okay, Corinth. You'll get her done. Remember, we looked at this word acceptable last week. All of this is acceptable in the sight of God and man. We're not going to review that. But verse 13, for this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction but by way of equality. This is what the white writer is saying. By the way, don't misunderstand, your free will generosity is not to make you poor and the Jerusalem church rich. It's not the point. Further qualification. Sharing doesn't change your demographic standing within the culture. Biblical sharing, sacrificial, joyful sharing but always know that our sharing many times is not even close to bringing us to the point where it does change potentially our demographic financial position in the culture. Therefore, we're not sharing to change the financial demographic of the Jerusalem church either. This phrase does not teach that generous sharing is to be done to bring all parties involved into the same economic cultural standing. The sharing discussed in the context and among the churches involved with this collection for the Jerusalem church doesn't change their economic position, but ensures that there will be needs cared for enough for all. So their local church environments can focus on the spread of the gospel. You see, we can't separate the caring for needs apart from the advancement of the gospel anywhere in the New Testament. The Jerusalem church was struggling so much that they were facing closing their doors, so to speak, and then gospel advancement where it all began is just gone. This is sharing unto sending more gospel servants out. Listen, it was from Jerusalem where the first church was ever established that the gospel came from the, in the first place. No church taking part in this collection would even exist without the testimony of Jerusalem. So certainly we share back to this precious people 
that advanced to us the beautiful message and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And further clarification is given in our context as well. It's tied to verse 14, which reads, at this present time, your abundance being a supply of their need so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need that there may be equality. All Paul is saying is this. Look, there may come a time when the demographic tables are turned. Maybe there's a pandemic someday, Corinth, in your area, and you lose your jobs, and you have to work from home. You can't interact with people, and then the government gives you so much money, no one wants to go back to work. And so when you finally, so when you finally get to go back to work, no one wants to go to work because they're making more money now not working than they did when they were working, and maybe all your companies of all you millionaires are going to fall to pieces. Maybe the demographic tables will be turned someday. That's all he's saying here. You could see in the text, right? He's saying, we don't know. But your sharing, Corinthians, out of your abundance will keep the Jerusalem gospel doors open. And there may come a time in your city-state where Jerusalem can share to keep your gospel doors open too. So the nature and function of equality here is layered. The equality is in the activity of sharing resources according to what one has and advancing the gospel. That's what's equal. There's no equalizing of financial demographics at all in this text. I think this is important time in today's sermon to, to briefly explain something of equality that we must understand about God inequality but I have to close this gets a lot better when you come back next week as we understand this fully I could preach till 1230 today uh, my heart's a little full um, and the context has so much more to teach us but next week what we're going to look at when we begin is is um, Look, we're going to consider God. We're going to consider a little theology to begin with. And how God equally exists in the Godhead with an order to that equal existence. We're going to talk about how God's no respecter of persons. We're going to talk about that relationship to how he has created and treated both saved and unsaved. And we're going to come take this whole concept of equality from a theological perspective and, and, and land that plane all the way down to what that means in relationship to us sharing and giving for the cause of the gospel. And I trust it'll be helpful uh, next week. All right? Uh, so let's pray together here. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for um, your word. Um, we thank you, Lord, that in these New Testament churches that directions on how to give among themselves could be given, but they really didn't have to be directed to give at all. I pray, Lord, that that's liberating for all of us, regardless of our socioeconomic status in this culture. I pray that all of us would just enjoy the grace of God and its development of us to personally understand and grow in every spiritual virtue, including this grace of sharing. Um, I'm just going to stop right here with your heads bowed and eyes. I'm not going to give an invitation. I just want you to think about this.
there are some here that by God's grace always beg to give right and that's I think the majority I would say a little over half of you definitely the majority there are some that struggle whether they can even give at all of their resources to gospel progress and to care of God's flock here right let alone thinking about giving extra to help another church that's not us I want you to maybe take what was spoken this morning and, and, and trust God. And there's some that just say, you know what, I'm so tired of hearing and about giving and this, that, and the other from other churches. I don't know who to trust anymore. I get that. If you're newer here, I totally get that. We might take some more time to invest in you to earn that trust so you know that sharing here is for the flock of God and for the progress of the gospel. Some of you have not had that experience, at least in the last 15 years I've been the pastor. We haven't talked about it here. So that's just not the case here, and yet some still aren't sharing, even to this local church, let alone a church beyond. It's my heart for you, based on the authority of God's word, you're a soul this morning that has no assurance You have no assurance. Because you're not even doing that which grace naturally and simply prompts the heart to do, which is one of the easiest things to do in all the New Testament that all those saints were aware of. I encourage you to examine your heart and follow the example of Christ, the Macedonians, Titus, and other saints here that are growing in the grace. And for the rest of us, I trust that our hearts stay open to being taught what it means in our culture and in our time to do all that we can to the person for the care of the flock and the advancement of the gospel. This is all about gospel progress and not about the building of an institution or institutionalism. Lord Jesus' return is imminent. And when he returns, may he find us all faithful in the simple obedience unto the very mission for which he came in the first place. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for, again, ministering to us by your spirit and the word. We look forward to conversing about this together, naturally so, among the flock. Help us to continue to grow in our love for you, your word, and each other, and the souls in our community that need Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.